Hey folks from the flight deck, this is your captain speaking. Welcome to the Tailwinds and Sunshine podcast, where we talk everything aviation. I am your host, Manny Ramirez. It's always a pleasure to have you on board. So please sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode three of the Tailwinds and Sunshine podcast. Thank you for spending a little bit of your time with me today and listening to my jibber jabber. I want to thank all my supporters, all my subscri- uh, subscribers, and all my listeners for uh, for being here. So I really do thank you from the bottom of my heart. Um, if you have not uh, subscribed, I do recommend you subscribe. I do try to put a new episode every week. Uh, if you also, if you have not submitted a review, please go to uh, the uh, either Spotify or Apple Podcast, wherever you're listening to this podcast in, and submit a review and also leave feedback, leave a comment. I do read those and uh, to make sure that this becomes your podcast. I also want to welcome new listeners. If you, uh, if you, this is your first time listening to the show, welcome. Where this is the Tailwinds and Sunshine podcast where we let, uh, talk about everything aviation. And uh, as I said earlier, I want this to be your podcast. So please, if you have feedback or if you have any topics you want me to talk about, leave them in the comments in the uh, in, in, the, uh, in either Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And I'll make sure I'll include it in the rotation. The goal is to eventually get co- uh, guests on board and just have a discussion, you know, pilots or any type of uh, aviation enthusiast that wants to get on board. I already have some... Uh, People that want to get on board and do some episodes with me, and, I, and I'm going to get them as soon as I can be in their location so we can sit down and have a chat. So today, I'm really excited about today's episode. This episode is more t- geared towards uh, regional pilots that are trying or trying to make the decision to make the jump to an uh, uh, ultra-low-cost carrier or you know the major airlines. And when I use uh, the words major or legacy, I use them interchangeably. interchangeably uh, so major and legacies we're talking about, uh, or I'm sorry, mainline or um, legacies, mainline we're talking about uh, United, Delta, American, whereas uh, if we talk majors, we're, ta- we're thinking more like Southwest and JetBlue. Anyways, so what have I been up to since episode four? I have been in the training department since the 4th of January. I commuted in here and I've been just doing my observations to uh, get signed off to teach procedures training. So that's kind of a, it's not a full, uh, it's not a full motion simulator. It's a training device that has a throttle quadrant. It still has some touch screens. It has a control, uh, a yoke. So we have a different, so we teach gate to gate operations with some abnormals and we uh, teach flows and checklists as long uh, uh, as well. So that's kind of, that's the step before you go into the full motion simulator, which uh, it's where you do maneuvers training in loft or line oriented flight training, which is uh, getting ready for your check ride in the AQP or advanced qualification program that our airline has. So today I'm going to be talking about, uh, about that, about, you know, first officers or just regional pilots in general that are thinking of making that leap into an ultra low cost carrier. And I'm going to try to help you out to make that decision. Uh, if you, if it's worth moving or if it's worth, you know, if it's better just to stay where you're at, 
Um, I'm also going to be talking about something more lighthearted. So we're going to, I'm going to just uh, talk about what is that pilots do when they turn on the autopilot? What do we do? So as we all know, most uh, aircraft are now highly automated. The planes fly themselves, really. So what is it that pilots do? What are we getting paid to do? Also, uh, I've gotten a lot of questions regarding why is it that I don't post uh, pictures or videos while in flight. So I'll talk about that and the reasons behind it as to why I don't do that. Also, uh, I'm going to talk about how to stay proficient or how I stay proficient to fly general aviation. Every once in a while, I want to take a friend up and, you know, in a Cessna or I want to, uh, you know, just want to take family or a friend up or go to, uh, you know, do a fly in for the hundred dollar burger. And but as an airline pilot, I'm pretty busy being in the training department and flying the line. Um, I don't fly as often anymore. So. I'm not as proficient in these uh, general aviation aircraft, so I'll share my my advice with uh, with you as far as how what I do to stay proficient. Also, uh, I think that was uh, I think that was all I was going to talk about, and I think that should cover roughly about half an hour of content. So I'm not going to bore you guys entirely. So let's get started with uh, what uh, what's with today's episode. Um, the one thing, actually, before I even continue, I wanted to go back to and talk a little bit about what happened in episode two. Um, so if you haven't listened to that episode, go ahead and download it, listen to it. But I really got passionate about and I started talking about mediocrity and how just this type of employee or this type of person now uh, days in our society where they're just kind of phoning it in, they're just doing their bare minimum to get the job done, is, it can potentially cause delays. And how I personally have seen it happen where someone that just doesn't care about their job, they don't take pride in themselves, have, ca- have caused delays in my flights. Um, so that... Uh, what what I wanted to review is that or or talk about a little bit more is that I was talking with my friend Ian about this and he he put it really well he said you know think about this anything you do is you're leaving you should care about what you do and take pride in what you do because that's the legacy you're leaving behind so anything that you do is going to affect your future now as uh you know as we all know we make poor decisions as when we're younger you know we either lack lacking maturity or wisdom so we make decisions that we're like, well, you know, that that could have been handled better. But remember that if you take pride in what you do and pay your and put your best foot forward, you're always going to leave a lasting, very positive legacy. So keep that in mind. So right on. Let's let's go ahead and move on to today's episode. So I want to talk about why there is why the regional model exists. Why do we have these kind of contracted airlines to fly certain routes for the you know mainline and uh, legacy or, or mainline partners we have partners so the regional airlines some of them started out just as a regular charter airline they were flying small planes even small Cessnas flying you know passengers or cargo around but as the time went by they capitalized on the uh, opportunity to offer, uh, bigger airlines to open out routes for them or fly routes that, you know, the mainline couldn't fly into with their bigger jets. So they offered their services and say, hey, you know what, we're going to we can fly into from your hub to this particular location, which is typically an unserviced market and we'll open up a route for you and we'll do that. 
Initially, we had uh, regional air airlines had most of their fleets were comprised of turboprop aircraft. So think the Brasilia, think uh, the Q400, I believe it's a Q400. So these airplanes were turboprops that can access more fields that uh, the bigger jets such as, such as a 737 or the Airbus couldn't get into. Or it just didn't make sense financially to send a bigger airplane to a particular uh, field because it, the demand wasn't as great for a bigger plane. So over the years, as the regionals became and this model became available, the mainline partners would pay these regional airlines uh, for a certain amount of block hours. They'll say, hey, we'll pay you to do these routes. We'll pay you this much for this many hours flown. And then you decide what you're going to do with that, how you're going to pay your employees. We're not connected to you. We're going to allow you to fly under the flag of our carriers. So, for example, you know, uh, Air American Airlines, if there's a contract with American Airlines, their planes will be painted exactly the same as the American Airlines uh, carrier. So there would be no difference. And for the most part, the regional carriers did a very good job at um, assimilating to the operation of their, of their partner. So that way, that when a customer purchased a ticket on American Airlines, the customer would not see a difference in, in service. It would be exactly the same service for the most part. The only thing that would be different would be the smaller airplane. So this went on for years, and the regionals got away with um, paying substantially less for the same services. So at the beginning of the history of regional airlines, they were flying uh, on, you know, flying smaller aircraft. They were flying to... Um, uh, underserviced markets. They started picking up uh, what's called essential air service markets. So uh, these routes are basically subsidized by the government. The government would pay the airline a certain amount of money to make them fly into those markets so they would can service people in the in those cities, in those smaller towns. So initially, uh, to make it profitable for the regional airline, they would have to pay the, you know, their crew would be will pay, get paid substantially less. So there was a huge division between what pilots or the regional airline got paid and what mainline uh, pilots got paid. So that was the model for many years. And it continued up until recently, where there was a very clear definition of what a regional pilot was, even though we were doing the same, the same job. Now... As the years went by, then the regional airlines came under scrutiny by the government, especially because of an uh, accident that happened was back in uh, the Colgan uh, crash of, uh, that happened in February of 2009, when uh, pretty much there was an, uh, all fatalities um, and the government got involved, Congress got involved, and a lot of things changed. So the uh, government introduced, uh, the FAA introduced uh, rest and uh, time off rules under uh, federal regulation 1117, or 117, I should say, 117. And so they started introducing, and the airlines became, or the regional airlines became, came under a lot of scrutiny regarding their safety record, regarding inspections, regarding crew rest, regarding experience. And this is where the 1,500-hour rule came into play. Uh, now both pilots have to have an ATP certificate, whereas before there wasn't. They hired uh, pilots at a very low hours. Uh, you know, as long as they met the ATP minimums, they were good. The uh, first officer did not have to hold an air, air traffic, uh, airline transport pilot certificate. And so the, the Congress, because of this accident, 
they mandated that all pilots that are coming to 121 operations needed to have at least 1,500 hours of experience. Now, it's not, it's, there's obviously exceptions regarding, uh, depending on your education, uh, but that was kind of a hard number set that they, the government said we need to have this in place. And that is a very, uh, the 1,500-hour rule is pretty debatable just because of uh, there's debates about if it should be taken away, if it's going to stay. And I can tell you right now, just from what I, I, I know, that that's not, that 1,500-hour rule is not going to go anywhere anytime soon because that 1,500-hour rule or that mandate is basically written in blood. Uh, people died. It was a very emotional um, decision. So no congressman or woman is going to come in there and lose their career over, you know, rescinding this 1,500-hour rule. Multiple airlines have su- have submitted requests to remove this uh, or get a waiver to uh, remove this 1,500-hour rule, and it's been denied. Most recently, Republic Airlines went to the government and said, hey, we'd like to get this uh, waived, and they said, nope. Give them a big old thumbs down and said, you're not going to do that. No one is going to touch it because... There is uh, blood written all over this uh, uh, this mandate. So now, once that happened, uh, pay began to increase for pilots or just regional crews, regional airline employees. They began to increase, but there was still a clear separation between, uh, or not a separation, but a discrepancy between, I won't call it a discrepancy, but difference between the pay that regional employees got as opposed to mainline pilots. Now, as the years went by, the regional airlines began to adapt, began to get bigger airplanes. So they introduced the CRJ, the Embraer 145, and then eventually the latest one is the Embraer 175, which is the plane that I fly. And then we started to fly the routes that the mainline would fly. So they would fly, you know, we right now currently we're flying the same routes as a 737 or Airbus 320 or a 757 fly. We fly to the major cities, Houston, Boston, L.A., San Francisco, uh, Dallas, you know, Chicago. So we're flying the same routes that the mainline partners are flying. So they further went, and I don't remember when or I don't specifically know when these rules got in place, but now the uh, mainline pilot unions... They set in place what's called a scope clause. So these scope clauses are restrictions on the regional airlines saying we cannot fly planes that are greater than, they have more than 76 seats. And I believe the... Uh, there's also a weight restriction that the plane that the regional airlines fly cannot be, cannot weigh more than 88,000 pounds takeoff weight. So that restriction was kind of to prevent the mainline partners to outsource flying to the regionals because they knew and they know that we can fly those routes for cheaper. So why not outsource just like anything in our, in our economy, right? Why are our, our iPhones and our techno- or tech devices cheap? Because we outsource the construction of these devices to countries where there's less regulation. And in turn, there's it costs less to build a device. Whereas if it was built here, we have to have a bunch of rules and red tape that we have to jump and the hoops we have to jump through. And we tend to have, and we have employee protections. And so we have what, if we built the same device here, it would cost substantially more. So the same, same, um, same concept with the airlines, they know that we can fly for cheaper. So they would give that flying to us. So the 
uh, the unions for these airlines prevented that from happening by setting restrictions on how many seats and how much how big a plane could be. But now there's a twist. So now this past year in 2022, because of the pilot shortage, most of these regional airlines were hurting for pilots. So you've probably heard in the news, the pilot shortage, pilot shortage, pilot shortage. And most of it happened because a lot of pilots were furloughed during COVID. They extended, um, not furloughed, I'm sorry, retirement. They were uh, extended an early retirement because they didn't need to pay these pilots during COVID. So now when, when we recovered from COVID and we started ramping up travel, now they had this even bigger uh, pilot shortage and they had to hire. So mainline partners started hiring more and guess where they got their pilots from? They got it from the regional partners. So they got it from us. So all the pilots were leaving. So we started hiring more pilots. We started incentivizing with bonuses. We started incentivizing by uh, uh, improving quality of life items at the regional level. So we started to ramp up hiring, but they could not keep pilots from staying at the regional. So at the regional level. So what ended up happening is the regionals were suffering with that. So now they had to cut back on the amount of hours they flew. So they had to start parking planes because they didn't have enough staff. And so it created a huge problem. And for the regional airline, some of them even went bankrupt because they couldn't keep up with their staffing. So this year, I'm sorry, last year in 2022, what ended up happening is that almost every single airline increased their pay or they passed uh, uh, tentative agreements to pay their pilots almost equivalent to first-year mainline pay. So that was huge. It was huge because now we're flying the same routes, but now we're also beginning to earn almost as much as mainline pilots. So that gap, that, that difference between regional pilot pay and mainline pay has been closed. That gap is closing. So now that that prevented some pilots from leaving for the mainline uh, or mainline partners or the ultra low cost carriers, i.e. Frontier and Spirit. So with this increase, this increase in pay, we still saw pilots leaving, but we closed that gap even further. So the regional model is becoming more and more the, the, their, their days are numbered in some sense. Uh, so it is a model that if, if we continue to increase price or, or uh, pay for our pilots, what's going to happen is now the regional partners are not going to have uh, negotiation leverage when they go to the table to renegotiate the price that they're getting paid for the same hours flown. And it's going to get to a point where the return on investment for the investors of their regional airlines, they're going to say, well, I'm not getting the return on investment that I was expecting or I was hoping for. So they're going to start leaving and the uh, regional partners are going to start struggling. So right now we're dealing with that. So that's take that for what is worth. But it's definitely I think the regional airline model is becoming a thing of the past slowly but surely. I feel like these uh, the regional uh, model is going to become extinct here in the next I don't know, as soon as five years or maybe even, you know, five to eight years, I think it's going to, they're either going to have to adjust one way or another, or they're going to have to completely go out of business or the mainline partners are going to start absorbing or purchasing these airlines because it doesn't make sense anymore for them to continue paying the regional partners higher prices when they could do it themselves. So, so speaking of taking those in or, 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 you know, adjusting, 
the regional airlines currently what they can do, and now there's another kind of uh, wrench in the you know in the mix that they throw in is that right now most regional airlines are suffering from a captain imbalance, so staffing ba- staff imbalance. So we have plenty of FOs, but not enough captains because captains are getting uh, typically are more coveted by uh, ultra low cost carriers and mainline partners because they have more hours. So newly minted captains are getting are leaving in droves. And they're creating a problem because now we have this imbalance because we cannot have more FOs and captains. Well, currently we do have more FO and cap more FOs and captains uh, overall, but it's you know we don't need that many FOs if we're losing a bunch of captains. So the regional airlines, what they're doing is they're cutting back their flying. They're telling their mainline partners is like, hey, hey, just cut back on the flying a little bit. We're not going to be able to meet our our or uh, obligation to you. So we're going to park a bunch of planes and we're going to reduce the amount of flying that we do. So what happens is now the main line has to pick up that flying, which is good for them, but not necessarily good for us. So we're trying to, every single regional uh, airline is dealing with this problem right now with this captain imbalance. And there's really only so much they can do because they can't keep throwing money at the problem because again, it's going to affect their profits it's going to return. It's going to affect the return on investment of the investors investing in these companies or putting money into these companies. So it's not going to be a. Uh, it's not going to be. They only can do so much with money. They can do so by improving quality of life items that typically are not present. Uh, that we don't have that main mainline partners do to kind of keep captains from leaving. But the only solution I see here in 2023 is for these regional airlines to pump out as more captains that at, at, at a rate at a greater rate than they are leaving and that's kind of hard because the usual timeline for an upgrade captain is usually 2 months from start to finish and then they still have to go to IOE they have to get experience so it's going to be a really interesting situation this year my projection is that the regional partners are going to slow down their flying or they're going to continue like um they're going to continue their current block hours, and they're substantially less pre-COVID uh, than, they, than they were pre-COVID, or they're going to further have to reduce their block hours and park planes um, before they can actually, um, uh, you know, to fix this imbalance so they can get more captains on the line. Additionally, another way that they could possibly, uh, uh, regional partners can actually uh, adapt is by getting more efficient aircraft on the line. Um, the only airplanes that are right now that are very popular airplanes out there is the CRJ and the 175. Those are the biggest planes or the, the majority of airplanes that are flying for the regional airlines. The CRJ is no longer in production. So whatever is out there, they're getting older. They're getting less efficient. The 175 is the newer airplane. But when we think about the efficiency of an airplane, when you only are carrying 76 passengers on board, it doesn't make sense financially as cost per seat to fly a 175 as opposed to flying like, let's say, a a, a Neo a, or a, a A320 Neo with 160 passengers or more because it just doesn't make financial sense. But because mainline partners don't have these newer Air A320 Neos, then there's very few uh, 737 Maxes on the line, it still makes sense for these mainline partners to utilize the 175 because it's still efficient. But if they had more, if let's say United Delta American had a, a large amount of Neos and Maxes, sort of like Frontier and Spirit have a lot of, most of their fleet is Neos. 
And let's talk about that really quick. So what am I talking about efficiency? So you have a the 175 burns roughly around 3,000 pounds of uh, 3,000 pounds of fuel per hour, as opposed to the A320 Neo, which burns 5,000 pounds per hour. Uh, you know, so it's only a two pound, a 2000 pound difference, but they're carrying more than double than a 170, 175. So if United had more, had a more efficient fleet or, you know, all the airlines, if they had more efficient fleets, they could definitely say, you know what, we're just going to do the flying ourselves because we're actually carrying more passengers, um, we, ca- we carry more passengers for less fuel burn, so that's cost per seat is way less, so the uh, the expenses. So they're they're going to start saying, you know what, you guys, you guys are going to go back to just flying uh, essential air service routes in just smaller airports, and they're going to start cutting back on those major hubs, and that's going to reduce our uh, flying at the regional level. So the one way that, for example, the SkyWest is actually trying and it's just kind of it's my theory, just based on the news that have come out of uh, in the news as far as aircraft. Embraer came out with a new um, the Embraer one seventy five E two, which has a Pratt and Whitney's seventeen hundred G engines, which are they say they're supposed to be fifteen percent more efficient than our current uh, engine. That we have the GE engines on our on our planes, and. And those actually uh, have the new Pratt & Whitney 1700Gs, which are the same engines as the Airbus A220. They have they can produce up to 15,000 pounds of thrust each. And our current engines in the 175 can only produce maximum of 14,200 pounds at uh, 3,000 pounds uh, per hour fuel burn in cruise. So the only way they can do that or become more efficient and, and cut their costs is by getting these new airplanes on the line. However... Because of this plane is heavier, and it actually uh, uh, its maximum takeoff weight on this plane on the new one, E175E2 is around 98,000 pounds, which is 10,000 pounds above the limit that the scope clauses have set. And so I think SkyWest, uh, I don't know what the negotiations are or what the unions are trying to negotiate, but the, the, the airlines themselves, mainline partners, they are, they're okay with it. They are in agreement that we should update the scope clause to allow these newer, more efficient planes to come into the line. But the unions are fighting it because, they're again, they're scared that they're going to outsource more of their flying to the regional partners. So the... Uh, uh, SkyWest placed an order back in 2013 for 200 of these new airplanes, even though we can't fly them. And Embraer actually pushed the uh, the delivery of these aircraft until 2024. So I don't know what the negotiation status is for this scope clause, but I think SkyWest is foreseeing they could potentially um, uh, negotiate so they can bring these newer aircraft on the line, and, and then that way they can help reduce their cost so they can stay profitable and they can stay, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, competitive with other regional airlines. So uh, Skyways saw that. They purchased 100 firm, or, firm orders of these uh, E-175E2s, and they purchased another 100 uh, or the rights to another 100 aircraft for the future. So I will be really excited if they can manage to negotiate that scope clause and they allow this airplane to fly at the regional level because I would love to fly that airplane. Go ahead and Google it. Those engines just look super sexy. This airplane is super awesome. The avionics are updated. It is such a beautiful airplane. I would love to fly that airplane, but because of the scope clause, sorry, we can't do it. 
we can we can fly it. So right now they're just kind of sitting ducks right now. Uh, that 175, really the major purchaser of this aircraft, has been SkyWest, and uh, so we're waiting to see what happens. Um, so yeah, that's the whole story behind that. And another thing is that um, United of uh, the mainline partners. Um, if you actually United specifically, if there was a report from Simple Flying that they say that in January, the 175 was the most flown airplane for United. So United, the demand for the 175 is there because their fleet is not as updated as Spirit or Frontiers. So it makes sense financially to still fly the 175 in the routes, the routes that we're currently flying. Like I said, mainline, um, I'm sorry, major airports such as, you know, uh, uh, Chicago, LA, etc. So it is actually the a very popular plane. People love it. Uh, if you haven't had a chance to fly in the 175, try to find one. Uh, it's a very quiet aircraft. Has big windows. It's a uh, it's a very uh, smooth plane. is is high tech. It is the avionics in this thing is similar to the uh, Dreamliner or the Triple Seven. Uh, anything else out there is outdated. Even the Airbus and the uh, 737 Max. Their outdated technology. The Embraer 175 is where it's at. I love that plane. It's really good. So that's the that's the lowdown on what's going on with the regionals and what's happening. So now that let's talk about now um, for those pilots that are deciding or trying to leave the regionals to go somewhere else. So for for pretty much the it is well known that mo- the regionals are a means to an end. No one really, no one you really talked about that they say, oh my God, I want to go to Envoy and be there for the rest of my career. That's not the case. It's a means to an end. It's for us to build enough hours to be competitive, to become, um, uh, so we can interview with the mainline partners and go and fly for them because we have more hours. So it's never, most of the time, it's not the, it's not somewhere where we want to end up at. There are some, obviously, outliers or people that, because of certain circum- life circumstances, they ended up being at the regional level. And there's even a smaller percentage that say, hey, yeah, I'll be happy here. You know, I don't mind flying this plane for the rest of my career. And that's perfectly fine. But the majority of us want to move on to the bigger planes, want to fly for a more, I would say, stable airline that doesn't require or it does not depend on someone else to for their success is more on the customer. So if your goal is to go to a mainline partner, I would say build up your hours, go for it, you know, do your thing. Um, but if you want to, if you're thinking about leaving a regional airline to go to an ultra low cost carrier also as a means to an end to get you to a mainline, I would say wait it out. Our pay has gotten way better. The big difference is not there. The pay difference is not that much. And also think about that is once you leave your regional airline, you're going to go to the bottom of the barrel to uh, of the seniority list. You might sometimes even take a pay cut. Not so much anymore, but you might. Also, you're going back on reserve and you might have to change your base. So think about that. If you're going to be using them as a, as a means to an end, just wait till you get to the hours that you need to get for the uh, your dream airline and then make the switch. Or if you're just completely miserable where you're at, 
you know, and you just don't want to be there anymore, then fine, you know, make the jump to the, to the, uh, to the ultra low cost carriers of frontiers and the spirits of the world. Now frontier recently actually just updated their, 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 uh, compensation package to match spirits because spirit was, I think they just passed it, uh, to it, uh, sorry, not tuition, but a tentative agreement and they're doing a pretty, it's a really, really nice uh, pay package. I don't have the details of it in front of me, but they did a pretty good job and their pilots are pretty happy the majority are. And um, Frontier came back and snapped back and said, hey, we're now going to increase our pay and we're also going to increase our bonus from $30,000 to $50,000. Now, there's a caveat to that is that the that bonus, quote unquote, that Frontier is offering, I've heard and I've confirmed it with a union rep at Frontier that that is in fact a loan. So if you were to leave Frontier by, I believe it's three years, if you leave before then, you have to pay that bonus back with interest. So they start charging you interest um, or they start building up that interest. And if you do leave before those three years, you have to pay that loan with interest. So it kind of prevents you from just dumping that money in a money market or a high yield savings account and making some money over those three years. So they will make you pay it back. So that's your choice, what you want to do. But it all comes down to your quality of life. I'll share my experience with you guys right now. So I'm currently, my seniority is second to none in Denver. I am number 12 in seniority in Denver. I am in the training department, which allows me flexibility to do what I like, which is flying. And also what I love, I'm sorry, flying and what I like to do, which is which is flight training. So I don't fly as much, so I'm not building those hours as fast as I could. However, I, I really love the flexibility. I, my quality of life has never been better. Um, and at the regional level, quality of life just moves. I mean, your, your seniority just moves quick. And especially in the environment we are right now, because of all the movement, your seniority just skyrockets pretty quick. Additionally, I think that I, with my current pay, it doesn't make sense for me to leave my quality of life, my pay to go to a ultra low cost carrier. It would not make sense. Now, we're probably making a little bit more money or just about the same uh, uh, or even are probably making less just because in the training department allows me to work a little bit more for so work more efficiently. And so I don't think I want to do that. So I want to wait for the United, the deltas of the world. And I want to wait for that and then go end up in my, uh, you know, and retire there and then spend my next 20 to 25 years at that airline. But where I'm at, I'm happy. I don't see the need to go fly an Airbus, although I, I'd love to fly an Airbus. I don't foresee, I, that's not going to be my only factor as to why I'm going to leave. It's going to be just everything. It's going to be a, a, a holistic approach to my decision if, uh, to leave my current employer. Now, uh, it should be known that, you know, we have the holy trifecta when it comes to the airlines or an airline pilot. You want to have the metal you want to fly. When I say metal, I mean the airplane you want to fly, your base and your pay. So all quality of life. So if you can get all those three, awesome. But most of the time it doesn't happen. You have doesn't happen like that. You have to build up to it. So you're always going to end up at the kind of towards the bottom of the barrel of the seniority list. You have to work reserve. You have to be probably commute into your base. And eventually years down the line, once you can uh, uh, get out of seat lock, which means that you know you can now bid for another airframe, you can go and fly the triple seven, the seven five seven, or the A three fifty, whatever whatever it is that you want to fly. But it's definitely something where um, 
uh, mainline partner or legacy is will be or even the majors you know it, it's where you would know you're going to retire and that's kind of what pilots do is they go to these airlines to retire so seniority and progression of these uh, airlines are kind of a, a little bit slower just because this is where all pilots want to or the majority of pilots want to end up uh, my sim partner actually uh, just based on, uh, he told me, he's like, I'm happy staying at, you know, at my, at our company. I'm happy here. He's actually waiting, awaiting an upgrade class. He's going to, he's getting ready to upgrade. And we came in at the same time. So we trained together. We went to the, you know, the simulator together. We took our check rights pretty much, you know, back to back and he's out, out there flying the line and I'm here kind of doing half and half in the uh, training department and flying the line. So I'm not, I'm not getting my hours as fast as I should, but I'm happy. I'm happy where I'm at. I had a pretty good thing going, and I really enjoy doing what I do. So your decision is based on does it make sense to dump all that seniority, to uh, possibly take a pay cut, or just a, such a small increase in pay to lose all of that, uh, all, all of all of that other stuff. And seniority is big at the airline. So, but now. If your goal is to go to Frontier, Spade, or Allegiant, or Sun Country, or Cargo Airline, and you're fine with that, that's fine. By all means, go. As soon as you can, immediately go. But if your goal is to go to a, the United of the World, then I would suggest you just skip the ultra-low-cost carriers, possibly even upgrade at, at, at your regional airline, and then go to uh, the Americans of the world. So do that. So take that for what is worth. That's my advice. Um, and I'm sticking to it. So yeah. So tell me what you think. Uh, if you have any comments or anything, shoot me a message. Uh, my Instagram handle is climbvx, a C-L-I-M-B as in Bravo, V as in Victor, X as in X-Ray. Hit me up there or just leave a comment on Spotify or Apple Podcast. I'll be able to read that. Now, Let's move on to the next topic is what do pilots do when the autopilot is on? So when we take off, we do it manually. So that's always done manually. And we are authorized to turn on the autopilot uh, as low as 400 feet above the, the ground. So we're able to just take off immediately after that. If maybe 30 seconds later, we call for the autopilot. And after that, we just become basically we monitor the aircraft's state. Um, but what do we do? So let's say usually for me, I'll tell you what I do typically. So when I take off, um, I tell the, the captain, I say, Hey, uh, I'm going to take the plane up to 10,000 feet, stabilize it at uh, 270 knots. And then I'll call for the autopilot at that time. And then after that, we're just checking fuel numbers. We're checking, making sure we're communicating with air traffic control. Uh, we're making sure that the airplane is doing what it's supposed to be doing, you know, meeting restrictions on the departure, speed restrictions, altitude restrictions, heading uh, vectors, etc. cetera. Uh, once we uh, climb through 18,000 feet, we set our barometric, uh, uh, our barrel to standard, which is 2992. And then we do fuel checks, turn off our lights, et cetera. Once we get to cruise, we do uh, fuel checks, our initial type of climb fuel checks. And depending on the uh, length of the flight, we're either already getting ready for the approach into the, uh, into our destination. So we start getting weather. We start getting uh, uh, a uh, performance numbers for our landing. And we're just continually communicating. So flights that are short, like, for example, the one of the routes we do is between Denver and Colorado Springs. That is literally a 20-minute flight. So we get we are busy turning knobs, pressing buttons, talking, and, or, and sometimes even hand-flying because it's, it's a sh such a short flight. 
But on longer flights that are two hours plus, then we are there just kind of, you know, we do have, you know, conversations between the crew and we have conversations regarding work or family, et cetera. But most of the time we're referencing we're always making sure that we have alternates ready to go. So what I like to do is I like to go in and start searching for alternate airports, uh, depending on the situation. So I look for uh, airports within a hundred mile, mile radius from our location to make sure that if we do have a catastrophic failure of some of our one of our systems, we can make and we and our uh, QRH procedure directs us to land immediately. We have something that's ready to go. We don't have to think about it. We're ahead of the airplane. Or if we have something less uh, less uh, major or not catastrophic that we have time to fly, I make sure that we're going to an alternate that it has the services available for passengers. Uh, because my company flies to uh, for United Delta American, uh, Amer I'm sorry, United American Delta in Alaska. So we need to make sure that we don't go to a, a airport that just has United Services and we have a Delta flight and now we have Delta passengers going to a United base. So we have to take that into consideration. We also talk about, you know, we spend very little time, uh, or at least when I'm flying, I spend very little time just kind of, uh, you know, uh, uh, talking where or if we're talking is something regarding the flight so we talk about procedures if we uh, we brief uh, certain approaches depending on the weather we're talking about diversions we're talking about you know turbulence ride you know so ride reports we talk about that so we're in turbulence we decide we talk to air traffic control to get uh uh, pilot reports of uh, other altitudes to see if we can do a little bit better. We can get a better ride. So there's always something going on in the flight deck uh, when it comes to um, when it comes to flying. So when the autopilot is on, we do that. Once we're on approach, uh, very uh, more often than not, we disconnect the autopilot. Once we're on established on final, we disconnect the autopilot. We have the field in sight, and we land the plane manually. Um, but or sometimes on some rare occasions, uh, the captain or I will fly part of the arrival into the approach and do that. If it's a, again, it depends on workload. If it's super busy and we're coming into an airport where you just hear the air traffic controller nonstop and we see all this traffic on our on our multifunction display, we're like, yeah, maybe right now it's not the best time to hand fly it because now when one of the, when the pilot flying is hand flying the aircraft, now the pilot monitoring has all these other tasks to do, all the button pushing knob turning in communications and it can be overwhelming so we use automation to reduce our workload and but it also can you know be detrimental to hand flying so we try to kind of mix it up a little bit and definitely do some hand flying to keep our skills up so that's what we do when uh, we have the autopilot on so we stay busy up there especially in those short flights we have no time especially when we're going to mountainous terrains airports like for example reno or jackson hole Oh my God! There's so much to talk. <laughs> there's so much to talk about. There's so many much briefing. There's so much setup. There's nonstop talking and briefing and reviewing and in in chair flying a procedure in case if in case something does go wrong, we are prepared for it. So that's we're getting. That's why we're getting paid the quote unquote big bucks is because we prepare for the un, uh, unforeseeable or you know the unforeseeable the unexpected the unanticipated we are getting ready for that in case something happens so when it does happen we're ready for it and you've heard about you know uh, if you go on YouTube and find uh, ATC audio and stuff of flights of engine failures gear you know gear failures or uh, you know flight control issues 
the crew handles it very well because we are trained to do so. So the autopilot is great. We love it. And we try to stay busy when we're up there. Again, we do have conversations, personal conversations, but we try to, we try to keep that at a minimum. And if I find myself with a captain as a, you know, chatty Kathy, you know, I set a timer and just remind to remind myself that I need to be doing something, you know, with the plane, checking where we're going, uh, you know, checking for the weather, et cetera. There's always something to do. We're never bored up there. So that's what we do. So that kind of leads into the question about why I'm not posting uh, I don't post pictures in flight in, uh, or YouTube video or, or GoPro videos and stuff like that. Well, my company prohibits us from having our phones out once we basically any time. So our policy says that we cannot have our phones out. And if we do have our phones out is because we need we're using it for company business. So I do get away with obviously taking a picture in the flight deck, you know, posting uh, pictures when I'm doing my walk around, etc. But anything after that goes in airplane mode and then put it away. There's no reason for that. If I need to take it out for a calculator, cool. But other than that, my phone stays away. And um, that's just our company policy. It's so it's a little bit less depending on the airline you go to. So that's where you have to pay attention to the pilot policy manual for your company to making sure you're not violating any social media uh, guidelines they've set in place. Uh, I've known of uh, pilots getting fired for that kind of for posting uh, pictures like that. Um, so make sure and you're careful to you read your pilot policy manual to make sure that you're not uh, violating any social media rules or any safety uh, flight deck safety protocol when it comes to using your phone. Uh, so yeah, that's why I don't post. Uh, I don't post because I don't. I just don't. I rather not. You know, I don't want to get in trouble, and I usually just get away with just flight deck photos. Okay, cool. So we're almost here to the end. I know I've been here going on for about 45 minutes. That whole uh, regional pilot thing and the regional airlines, I think, is super, super, um, I find is is really complex. It's really dynamic. I find it super intriguing, and I really love talking about it, as, as you can tell. But here now, let's go, kind of bring all this to the end, and we're going to talk about how I stay proficient to fly DA aircraft as a, an airline pilot. So recently... I took a Cessna 172 and we went, I went up flying and I, uh, you know, but before that, about a month or so before I felt like I needed to go and, you know, have an instructor, my friend Ray came in and I asked him, I said, Hey, could you just take me through, you know, through the paces, do some stalls, some hood work, just going through, you know, the, the limitations of the aircraft so I can be more comfortable with flying this aircraft on my own. So I went up and uh, went up with my friend Ray, and he's an instructor out of North Las Vegas. And so we went and, you know, he put me under the hood. We did some stalls, some steep turns, just kind of getting the feel for the aircraft. Uh, the biggest challenge for me is just the communication aspect of it. It's uh, North Las Vegas is a very, very busy airspace because you have uh, Harry Reid International, you have Nellis Air Force Base, and you have the training area up in the northwest, which is super busy now with aerobatic aircraft and a lot of uh, student uh and a lot of pilot training going on there. So it is busy. So that for me was a little overwhelming. Uh, but it, it, it's like a, it's, it's, for me, it was like a bicycle. You know, you never forget how to fly it, but you definitely kind of, uh, it's not as overwhelming. Uh, if you remember being a private pilot and your situational awareness is just focused on your, um, on your PFD. 
But now, you know, it was kind of, it came, it, it all came back to me and I got comfortable flying the airplane. So then I was able to, you know, go up on my own and do my own flying and I can take friends up and do that. So my suggestion to you is to anytime you want to fly a, I if you want to continue flying at least twice a year, go and do some approaches or just bare minimum review the limitations of your, your aircraft. What airspeed do you rotate? What's your approach speeds? Uh, do the checklist, do everything. Uh, recently when I flew, I made sure that I covered every checklist and I was very deliberate with the checklist and making sure that I was covering everything because I mean, I have over a thousand hours in a Cessna, uh, and combined over 1500, just in the 152s and 172s. But is once you get in a rhythm, you understand that you're quicker. But now that I've been away from it, you know, regular instruction and flying the Cessna, you know, I I told myself I'm going to stick with the checklist and very methodically go through each item to make sure I don't miss anything and uh, want to be as safe. And I use my 121 training to kind of bring it into the uh, general aviation world as far as briefing, um, you know, NOTA or threats, briefing threats, briefing everything. So I kind of take my training from the 121 world to the GA, which helps me out a little bit to mitigate the risk of general aviation. So don't let... 121 operations, this is for my uh, airline pilots, only 121 operations kind of shy you away from uh, going and flying GA. Uh, a student came up to me and it was concerned about trying to uh, potentially getting in trouble as far as if you get in trouble in GA world and coming into the, you know, uh, being attached to your certificate. And I said, no, don't worry, you know, it's not worth you know, GA is going to be inherent. There's inherent risk in flying GA, but if you do it safely and you stay proficient by taking out an instructor if needed, it's going to it's going to it's going to be a non-issue. So that's my that's my uh, technique on staying proficient is just flying every once in a while. And if and if I feel like I'm going to do something uh, a different mission, for example, that was kind of just local flying that I did. But if I'm going to go do a cross country flight. Uh, then I would obviously take another instructor or talk about and sit them down and have a ground lesson and talk about cross-country flight planning, uh, air traffic rules, you know, restricted airspace and et cetera, because we don't often as, as uh, airline pilots, we don't often think about that anymore because we're always IFR under IFR. We don't have to really, uh, worry about airspace or any of that. So it's not something we are too concerned about all the time. It does come up every once in a while, but not as much as general aviation. So anyways, I've been talking up here from my, been talking my head off here for almost 50 minutes. So, but once again, I want to thank you for spending this time with me for, uh, supporting the podcast. And once again, go on Spotify, go on Apple podcast, leave a review, leave comments, leave a feedback, leave some feedback. I greatly appreciate it. Um, and I will come up with another episode. I have already topics to talk about for next episode for episode four, and I'm really excited about that episode as well. Um, but now this is the end of the show. Once again, thank you so much for your support. Always, always, always wishing you tailwinds and sunshine. Have a good one.